0: January 6th, false flags, stolen elections. How do we Americans move in a more productive direction when it feels as if our age is fueled by endless conflict? The promise of tension is release, of course. And I promise you a way forward today, right here, right now, because this is Grace Arkey with Jim Babka. I'm your host, Bill Protzman. Hey, Jim, how do you feel about the January
1: 6th investigation? (laughs) Well, uh, my normal response to this is to say, river." So Truly. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a, uh, i am I was a big L libertarian. I vote big L libertarian when I tend to vote. Uh, that's a third party. And most people don't know that ballot access laws are number one used to keep these parties off the ballot. And as years have gone by, the, all the other parties, the third parties that you may have heard of, including Ralph Nader's Green Party have faded away reform party of ross pearl they've all faded away and they cannot get more than say 25 to 30 states ballot access the libertarian party consistently gets 50 tell you a quick story when you see you can use this as a predictive thing when you see a billionaire and it happens every four years suggests that they're going to run for president the in the last election it was the ceo of starbucks they inevitably come back and say uh, I thought about it and we've decided that we're going to spend more time with family or I've got other priorities or whatever. Who wouldn't, what, right? <laughs> exactly. What you don't know is that behind the scenes, they found out that ballot access was going to cost them between 5 and $10 million. That's no campaigning, no outreach, 5 to $10 million just to get to the starting line of the race. And they decided that that was not money they, to be well spent. And by the way, it's very hard to find reputable people to help you with this process and get it done right. And so uh, the Libertarian Party has been able to do something unique in that they can get 50 state ballot access every year. And they're able to do that because they've mastered it internally. And they have a head start on being able to do it. And so they get it done. And, you know, but it bothers me that they still have to spend usually about a million and a half, maybe Maybe a little less depending on the year, just to get that done. That's what just they've got to do, just to get that done. Just and just to put a piece on the on the on the game board, right? Exactly. And then there's campaign finance laws, which we'll get into at some length. It's in a future episode. But essentially, these are incumbent protection acts. They're designed to make it harder for challengers to get the resources they need to compete. And then in a congressional race, you have on top of that, the fact that the lines were drawn by the party in power in that state. So your congressman chooses you, you don't choose your congressman, right? So all of these things, all of these things, these riggings are in place and Republicans have been deeply involved in it. So I live in Ohio in 2014, John Kasich wanted to run for re-election for governor. He purposely had the law changed Uh, right in 2013, so that they could knock the Libertarian Party off the ballot. That was the whole purpose of it, to keep them off the ballot. So when you say to me, oh, my Republican votes didn't get counted, I'm like, too bad, right? You've been busy hosing me all this time. So I kind of have a hard time generating the type of empathy that I normally want to talk about in this show. I have to admit, this is my confession at the beginning. I'm struggling a bit. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I I get it because you know, the majority
0: of America thinks there's something major at stake here, and there's two responses: one is to ignore it, and the other one is to like get all up into it, you know, and and be all present and angsty about the January
1: 6th hearings. But how do we how do we see through this? Oh, I, I think first off we have to recognize that we're the whole mechanism is flawed, right? Yeah. So what is democracy? Could you imagine if we were ordering pizza in democratic fashion, right? And you had to eat pepperoni, even if you're a vegetarian. No, you will eat pepperoni because the majority vote's been decided, right? Most of the things that we do in life, like ordering pizza, we A, allow for everybody to choose their choices. We find ways to compromise. You know, we can all go out and order pizza and somebody say, you know, I'm, I, I'm, oh, I need is a salad tonight. Well, it turns out that's on the menu too, right? Yep. Yep. That's not how an election works. That's not how democracy works. And then once we elect these people, they have the power to force or coerce. So what they're trying to do is capture majority control. They're trying to capture the white house, So that they can write the rules that they will use and force against the rest of us. And so I'm suggesting that when you're so busy arguing about the mechanism over who's going to have the fight over the force, the reason the stakes are so damn high is because we both know that if the other guy's team is in charge, if the other gal's team is running the show, we're in trouble. Yeah. They have the force. We eat pepperoni. Yes, we all get stuck with pepperoni and not that there's anything wrong with pepperoni. So. It's a the other thing is that this is all this this whole January sixth thing is part of the conflict machine. I want to point out something that most people are not. We're going to explain the conflict machine in a second, but let me just point out that what I mean here to say is that this is a diversion. So let me give you an example of some things that matter to your life right now. Inflation, the price of gas, whether or not war is going to spread in Europe. These are all things that matter to you right now. Do the politicians want you focused on that? Do they want you to focus on the economic issues at the moment? No. Does the media want you focused on it? No. There's real conflict to be had on side issues about who has the power and who doesn't. So there used to be a TV show on uh, MSNBC called Hardball with Chris Matthews. Do you recall the show? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I used to write for a blog that no longer exists called Positive Liberty. I was one of the writers there, great team of people. And I would close every blog post. And this is in the 2007, eight, nine timeframe. I would close every blog post with the phrase hardball Delenda Est. This is, uh, I'm trying to think of the lawmaker, the Roman lawmaker that used to stand up and say at the end of every talk, "Gethargo Delenda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. I was saying hardball must be destroyed. It's a mindset. There was a mindset to Chris Matthews' show that was very, very evident. Crossfire on CNN had the same thing going on until Jon Stewart showed up on an episode and blew it up. Yeah, yeah. Classic. It was a classic thing. Uh, Tucker Carlson was one of the two people hosting the show that day. Blew up hardball. Um, what politicians tend to cover... During, especially during campaigns, but basically all the time, what, what the media tends to cover is which politicians up, which politician is down. Okay. So if a policy happens, Bill, uh, gas prices increase or whatever, well, you know, who's up and who's down and who's going to be able to, in Chris Matthews' own words, spin this, spin this to their favor. What is the way that they're going to get get back on top? So I want to notice, you want you to notice something there. They're not talking about you, Bill. They're not talking about me or anybody that's listening or watching right now. They're talking about the politicians. How, what's the effect going to be on Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Mitt Romney, right? It was the candidates running. What's the f- impact going to be on the campaigns in the fall? So I, you know, th- I resist the notion that something really major was at stake here. Um. And 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 think that people were being sucked into a system that was designed to keep them at each other's throats, keep them divided, and keep them distracted. The conflict machine is a system where there has to be a loser. There's gonna have to be an argument. We're gonna divide up into teams, and there has to be a loser. And we all get stuck with pepperoni, right? It's a it serves the interests of the Republicans and the Democrats to have these arguments. In particular, this particular argument serves the Democrats, but trust me. We will cover in the course of future episodes, numerous ones where Republicans are doing exactly the same thing. So this is
0: status quo, ante. the idea of ginning up some conflict to be able to stay on top politically is priority one. Priority two is whatever might be useful for the country.
1: Yes, it's maybe. always
0: priority maybe, <laughs> maybe it, it might not even come up on the radar at all. Yeah, it's all about priority one. So, are, are are you then of of uh, so? How does January sixth, the actual hearings matter? But more importantly, how does January sixth itself matter?
1: Well, I am not suggesting, and I want to be clear about this. I am not suggesting that um, that what happened on January sixth was good or excusable. There's a lot of people who are offering very ad hoc explanations at this hour about why it's okay. Um, It was wrong. And people who are close to me recall me telling them in the fall of, in fact, I was saying something all throughout 2020, but I was saying it, especially in the fall. I posted about this to Facebook that Donald Trump was already laying the groundwork for this theory. He was already talking about it. He was already suggesting it was going to happen. The big steal or whatever we're calling it. Yes, it's a false flag. It's an invented false flag theory. And it's interesting to me that people who most want us to be awake to the idea that there are such things as false flag theories fell for this particular one. Um, I have not, and I'm still waiting. I've got a friend who is deeply investigating this and is going to be coming out with a movie. When his movie comes out, I'll watch it. Um, I will. I'll take in the evidence of it, and I'll do it because I trust him. But uh, for the most part, I'm I, I've not seen the evidence of this of it up to this point. This particular election had more paper ballots in it than the previous four right it had done it in a reverse course where it made sure that everything was being somehow or other audit there was an audit trail to all of it and so the fact that they had such a well-established audit trail made a big big difference in the counting um so you know people are going to disagree with me on this but i'm telling you I, i do not think it's excusable and the people who engaged in trespass and especially damage of property should be prosecuted. So I don't want to say that I'm excusing all of this, but a prosec a low-level prosecution is a lot different than putting on a big show on Capitol Hill. Exactly,
0: exhibits.
1: yes. Yes. Are
0: are we um how do we respond to the people who in their heart of hearts believed that participating in the insurrection of January
1: 6th was the right thing to do? Listen. And, and, and so let me go back in time a little bit here, because I think there is a sense of desperation for not being heard. Yes, that's true, isn't it? Yes. Right. So let me go back in time. Donald Trump is an anomaly to begin with. I, I you know, um, let me tell you something I was wrong about. I twice. said something I predicted. Let me tell you something I was wrong about. I did not think Donald Trump could win the Republican nomination. You know who agrees with me on that subject or did agree with me at that time? Donald Trump. <laughs> well, yes. You want to know who else? Sure. Hillary Clinton. Right. That was their preferred candidate. They wanted to see as much attention because he they thought he was pulling down the entire Republican side. The more success he had, the better it was. And in fact, if he ends up being the Republican candidate, he's the easiest one for us to beat. And it turned out to be wrong. Now, why? Now, if you talk to the people, and I have, I've gotten, I know a lot of people who supported Donald Trump a lot, a lot of people in my life, like physically, terrestrially. Like I can go see them right now and get in the car and be there in a few minutes. Those people were not telling me that they loved Donald Trump's character. They were not telling me that they thought he was heroic. Now, I I will tell you now, some of them have come to the conclusion that he was heroic, Mm -hmm. but they were not feeling it at the time. Some of them even said, I'm going to have to hold my nose to vote for him. But what they had in common, the people who tended to like him during the primaries had most in common was that they felt they hadn't been listened to by their own party. They felt that the Republican Party had not represented them. They were aggravated. So, you know, uh, just to take one issue, just as an example, okay? Everybody's individual mileage on all of these questions, every Trump supporter's mileage is going to vary a bit. Uh, but I'm going to de- dig deep here into ancient history for just a moment. Do you remember Obamacare? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it started off as Romney care in Massachusetts. That's right. Okay. And in 2012, the party put up a tepid candidate at the time that there was a Tea Party. And people were frustrated by his lack of representing their core values. And you've got a whole area uh, you know, of Appalachia and so forth where they felt that they weren't being re- uh, represented. Their, their, their values were being attacked. You had people who had been in blue-collar professions that had seen their industries fade away. They felt they weren't being represented. And what they told me, some of them flat out admitted that this was a big middle finger to the establishment. They wanted this all shaken up. This was this was almost entertaining to them. They loved how much he got Democrats and the media mad. Okay, he was a very expression of their powerlessness, and they he was their guy. Um, now he loses. And he had told them he was going to lose. And they had seen four years of unprecedented, you know, I've been following this all my life. I've never seen the media so in lockstep aligned in opposing the guy that's in the office. I'd seen plenty of criticism of every single office holder. Okay. it's the media's job, but this was like over the top and they knew it. These people instinctively knew it. And then they started getting censored on social media. And so you know, we're going to talk more about this in a second, but I just, they, they weren't being listened to. So now where do you, where do conspiracy theories come from? Where do, what's their origin? Well, they come from a sense of powerlessness. I'm not powerful. I have to explain why I'm not powerful. Why is the world lined up against me? And, the, and, and so this is my concern. I think number one, I mean, I think it's really simple. It's really basic. The gracious thing to do here, the thing that would diffuse the energy instead of making this a big deal is to have a conversation and really try to listen to them.
0: How do you suggest we do that in an era where the only conversations are the ones that are
1: about conflict? <laughs> well, first I'm going to say, I think that what, hap- what, what we started the show off saying really, really, really matters. So you elected a Republican. I got to be honest with you. He don't care about you, okay? You elected Democrat, be blunt. She don't care about you either, okay? Daddy party and mommy party don't care about you, okay? They're absentee parents. They're bad news, and they shouldn't be our parents in the first place. You have a life to live, and it's amazing how much we can do if we do this together voluntarily. It really is amazing how much we can solve social problems just sitting here talking, just getting up and going out and doing something in our community. Of course, I agree with you about
0: that. Yeah, Government's been terrible at solving social problems. And we can do it on our own a lot better. You know, extra government? I'm a believer. (laughs) How do we play both games? I mean, we're still, you know, the the tail is still in some ways wagging the dog and all of us who are riding on the dog suffer.
1: Yes. Um, So, you know, one of the things I can tell you for me is and I've, I've, you know, you and I. The very first interview, I think we discussed this concept. The very first time you and I met, I believe we discussed this concept of a media fast. Oh yes, yes. Uh, turn off your cable news, CNN, MSNBC, um, Fox, Fox. Turn off your Washington Post, New York Times feed, Yahoo. Turn them all off. Just bent, Just completely cut off the news. Every day you do, it's going to have some more value. If you can manage to hold out a month, if you can manage to make it a month without following any of the news, and then you turn it back on, especially the cable news. Oh my gosh, is cable news bad? It's awful. It's horrendous. It's a show. It's entertainment. It is entirely about ratings. And they're constantly trying to hit your adrenaline. They're constantly trying to stir you up. That's why we call it the conflict machine. That is their entire modus operandi. That is their entire key to success. You may think that you're participating in some act of journalism. You're absolutely not. So I've been through that exercise. I have turned off, which I had to do while this was my career. I will tell you, uh, aside from the time that I was hosting my own radio show, and it's been quite a while now, I don't watch the State of the Union. I don't watch the State of the Union because I've heard, Bill, that politicians lie, right? And if it happens, and I believe something the politician actually said, the president of the United States stands up and lies, and I believe it. I'm literally going to be dumber than I was before I watched the show, and I just can't spare the IQ points. I got too much to do, so I, I just you can shut them out of your life, number one, and number two, you can look for the grace point in this situation. And for me, the grace point is. We need to start talking to one another again. And we need to not, let me be clear here, this social media suppression of people, various people's voices, tremendously destructive. If they don't have nonviolent outlets, most of them won't do anything, but somebody will, right? And it only takes one or it only takes one day as January 6th shows. So if you want to do something about this, we've got to start talking to one another again. And that's not happening. It's ironic that we have more conversational tools available to us than we've ever had, and we're having fewer actual conversations. Yes, yes. So I, I'm, I'm getting this. I'm
0: getting this. It's hard, but I'm getting it. We, though, as Americans, have this need to believe in something. And we feel like we need to follow the democratically elected candidate and you know as a third party voter myself i've held my nose plenty of times since i decided to be a libertarian voter but the interesting thing about it is that choosing to not vote for the duopoly forces me to do my homework and it's really difficult i mean i'll tell you folks it's really difficult to be able to find the truth it's really really hard these days because Mm -hmm. all of the media including the broadcast traditional media uh aren't telling the truth anymore. They're telling what sells ads. And my quandary is who do I go to? I mean, I, I QAnon makes sense because at least it's somebody saying something that might be true, right? <laughs> you know. And not that I agree with anything that has to do with QAnon, but the fact that we have alternate conspiracy theories like birds aren't real shows how easily <laughs> we're all manipulated, right? It's almost a joke. So if I sit down with you without knowing you from anybody, we just sit down in a room together and we start talking about January 6th, pick a, pick a topic, you know, something, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know that or how can we trust that either one of us is like informed to be able to even have an opinion that matters, even if we feel it so completely genuinely in our hearts
1: that this is the right thing? Um, so I'm the guy that when you're having a conversation with me like this, first off, I, uh, it might be surprise people. Uh, I'd have to bring my wife in to testify to this. I avoid political conversations with people, particularly people I don't know. Um, the ones that I'm having a conversation with, I've already established with those people that there is a zone of safety, right? I, I'm not going to get my head bitten off or something bad isn't going to happen because I said something. So I try to, This that's my normal baseline approach to conversation. But if someone is really insistent and my usual... Uh, response to somebody where I'm having this conversation the first time is to say, Well, you know, I you really don't want to hear what I think, right? Which by the way, they always do. <laughs> and then I so that kind of warns them that hey, look, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to get my head bitten off, we're not going to go there. I so if you're reproaching me as a Republican, you tend to believe in this conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you hard questions about it, but it's okay. I did the same thing to Democrats when they were believing Russiagate, right? Yep. I'm going to ask you questions and whatever side you're on, I'm going to ask you questions about what you believe and why you believe it. Why do you believe what you believe and give me evidence. And it's amazing. Some of it's very sparse. Um, But it's approaching it from the standpoint that I'm not buying completely what you're selling. I think you need to be maybe asking some better questions too. Maybe as you're going through this exercise, you realize you don't know what you thought you know as well as you thought you did. But the main thing I want to do is get people to kind of begin to see the other side a little bit, just a little bit, start to recognize not everybody's evil. Not everybody's crazy. In fact, very few people are evil and crazy. That's not what normal, that's not the normal thing. And if someone's exhibiting a behavior that you find really, really distasteful, um, it might be because they have incomplete information or they're scared. And if they haven't been given voice, if they notice that, if they feel like the walls are closing in around them, yeah, they're going to start acting in ways that appear to you to be irrational.
0: This is the uh, suicides of despair that were documented early on in, I think it was 2015, 14-ish. Guys in our demographic, like white males in the 45 to 60-year-old demographic, were offing themselves because they had no meaning left in life. Their jobs had disappeared, they'd dried up, they'd worked union all their lives, they'd believed the American dream, and it, they came to the end, there was nothing except despair. And I, I get that, I understand that, you know, as someone mm-hmm. who's been chronically depressed, but they, they had no lifeline left, except for perhaps Trump, and as you pointed out, nobody was listening to them, they weren't seen. And of course, Americans were fascinated with the younger demographic, we don't care quite so much about it old people with experience.
1: Well, let's talk about the the younger demographic for just a second. Now imagine you're 13, 14, 15 years old and it's 2009 and 2010 and 2011 and your unemployed parent, maybe now divorced, is on the couch all day long or in the recliner and they're starting to drink or maybe they're going out and getting heroin. Because we had that did happen. Like we had a spike in this country of heroin overdoses. We had a, we've, we've now of late we're seeing uh, suicide increases. Right. But there was a period of time when people recognized the system crushed, not just blue collar workers, all kinds of workers in this country who had saved up stock markets went down difficult choices. Maybe you were off to college in 2010. And the house value was low and the father, your father's portfolio was gone. The college savings fund weren't all that you were expecting because the family needed those funds. You start to see where, where there's a whole generation that's very, very upset. And, and I, I believe Bill, a lot of this uh, angst, this anger that people had at each other was baked in the cake at that point. The moment the bailouts happened, it was baked in the cake. Um, because there were on, on, on the right, there was the tea party movement. They recognized something was wrong. And the Tea Party movement morphed into what became Trump, okay? Yes, yes. And th- on the left, it was called Occupy Now, right? It was the Occupy movement. Yep. And they were showing up in cities, but it started on Wall Street. So they, they're the ones that became kind of the, the woke Bernie Sanders movement that has not quite successfully overcome the neoliberal do- liberal dominance that exists at the, at the highest levels of the dem- Democratic Party. They've not quite overcome that, but they're knocking on the door. They want to bring socialism back. So you have these two radical nationalist and socialist movements. Yes, I said nationalist and socialist, nationalist and socialist, not Nazi. I, I, I didn't say that. You have these two movements that are starting to come together, and they're both going to start fighting in the streets if that's what it takes. If that's what it takes, they'll do it. Supported by a media that sells ads based on conflict. Oh, man, this perfect. is exactly what they want. Did you, you perfect storm. Did, you know, they, Do you remember how much they enjoyed the riots in 2020? Yes. No, I mean, like literally yes. like yes. The, the, re, the CNN reported standing in front of burning buildings saying, well, there's not really any violence going on here. Yeah. yeah. They love COVID didn't apply to marches. Right. It applied everywhere else. You stay home. But these marchers, they belong out there. Right. And, and I'm not saying that their cause was wrong. I'm saying that the conflict, this was good television. This was excellent ratings. Yeah. And so it became part of our dialogue. And of course, we saw our cities on fire and we. Yeah. You, you can't miss the, the incentive here for the, the media, which is why they enjoy the January 6th hearings. And you can't miss here the incentive for the Democratic Party, which is to change the narrative and make it about Republicans bad. Look what they did, right? We got to put these hearings on television like we did Watergate on all the networks so that everyone has a chance to see it. They're trying to profit. And what's happening is the social fabric is fraying more when what we really need to do is sit down and have a conversation with each other.
0: So there's your challenge for folks who are listening to this. Grace is sitting down and having that conversation and knowing one another as a human being, not as just a stranger who votes a different way, but as an actual human being. What do you think? Can we do it?
1: I wouldn't be sitting here trying to do it. I have this conversation if I didn't think it was possible.
0: It was a softball,
1: man. I had to say it, though. <laughs> and,
0: and, you know, I, I'm as frustrated by this as everybody else. And it's not about changing minds. I don't want to change anybody's mind. Whatever you believe no. is what you believe. Yep. But the humanity- Not even, not even
1: asking them to vote libertarian. That's not exactly. my point. That's yep. not the
0: point here. Yep. The point is just, uh, it's being, I don't know, maybe it's being a facilitator for the conversation. Yeah. Because I don't feel that I've got any more of a claim to quotes what's right than anybody else does. And we all, in some sense, are Americans in this. One way or another, regardless of how you got here and when, we are in fact Americans. So, what do we do with this freedom? I think there's somebody who can inspire us on this. And it's kind of like harking back a long ways. But remember last time we were talking about school shootings in Columbine? Yes. Remember I that? I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were both there. Hey, it's, it's only a week ago now, maybe less. Yeah. But that letter from Daryl Scott. And I watched oh, that heartbreaking recorded testimony from the four year old girl from uvalde do we have a shot here i mean jim i'm I'm trying to offer a little bit of hope and i know it it goes back a ways but
1: um yeah i i I brought this to your attention between episodes because uh my aunt uh who would identify as being on the christian right uh listened to the entire show and she said you know I, i heard what you said and i think it made a lot of sense she said, "Is this what you mean?" And she sent me a link to a 2012 Facebook post. And the Facebook post was Daryl Scott. Now, for people who don't know who Daryl Scott is, Daryl Scott had a daughter, Rachel, who was killed in Columbine High School during Columbine shootings, and a son who was passed over could have been killed by the by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Okay, and I've had the privilege of shaking both the sons and father's hands. Daryl's hand. I got to do this about 16, 17 years ago. They came and spoke uh, at the church I was attending at the time. And uh, so she sent me this thing. She said, uh, you know, is this what you were trying to convey? So what I would like to do, it's going to take a couple of minutes. I'm not looking to bore everybody, but I'd like to share the letter. It's kind of long, but I want to share the letter because a key issue comes up in it. And when we get to that issue, I will start to point it out. So it's clear. Okay. Since the dawn of creation, there has been both good and evil in the hearts of men and women. We all contain the seeds of kindness or the seeds of violence. The death of my wonderful daughter, Rachel Joy Scott, and the deaths of that heroic teacher and uh, and the other 11 children who died must not be in vain. He talks about Cain and Abel, but he gets to the point where he says the villain uh, in this story has been considered the National Rifle Association. And he says, I was amazed at how quickly fingers began to be pointed. I am not a member of the NRA. I'm not a hunter. I do not even own a gun. I'm not here to represent or defend the NRA because I don't believe that they are responsible for my daughter's death. Therefore, I don't believe they need to be defended. I believed if they had nothing to do with it. He said he'd be their strongest opponent if if they did. He said that he was there because Columbine was not just a tragedy. It was a spiritual event that should be forcing us to look at where the real blame lies. Much of the blame lies here in the room. Much of the blame lies behind the pointing fingers of the accusers themselves. And then he shared a poem that he wrote. He goes on to say that uh, men and women are three-part beings of body, mind, and spirit. And that when we refuse to recognize that third part, um, that we're denying an essential part of of other people's humanities. But that the, the real villain lies in the heart. As my son Craig lay under that table in the school library and saw his two friends murdered before his very eyes, he did not hesitate to pray in school, he points out. I challenge every young person American around the world to realize that on April 20, 1999, at Columbine High School, prayer was, prayer was in schools. I, I, I'm focused on the fact that he dealt with the issue of blame in this letter. And specifically, and we're going to get into this in, 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 in a future episode in a great deal of detail, the blame is kind of at the root of our problems. Uh, blame is part of my definition for the word sin. And the, the fact that we are always looking to find somebody to ascribe blame to leads inevitably to the next step, is, which is we need new rules, new laws, more punishments, greater control, Uh, We need to really get even. That's always what comes out, always. So in the gun issue and in this issue, I'm not a fan of these hearings. I'm not a fan of these hearings because I'm a Republican. I'm not a fan of these hearings, these January 6th hearings, because I don't like Democrats. I'm not a fan of them because I don't believe that we're extending grace to one another. I'm not a fan of gun control laws because I believe it's blaming the wrong thing What should happen, as we discovered in the first episode, was we should be trying to understand people who are in pain, pain that's so desperate, they're willing to kill themselves. Today's episode, we talk about pain so desperate, they would storm the Capitol building. Pain that's so desperate that they insist that they need to be heard in some way. And I would ask, this is my grace point for the day, are you listening?
0: And let's, let's unpack just for a second. If you want to listen, how do you do that? And I know empathy, we've brought that up before. Eye contact, being in the room if you can, Zoom's nice. Um, asking leading questions, like really making an effort to completely hear the other person before you say anything. Uh, and skills. don't
1: associate their ideas with them. They are yes. not their ideas. We are
0: not our ideas. This is so well said. I mean, there's things I believe, you know, but ultimately they're not really me. They're just thoughts I keep thinking. Mm -hmm. And maybe they serve me, maybe they don't. But I'm not going to be judged for that. That's just who I am, right? And and neither will the person whom I'm listening to. Judgment neutral zone. Can we do this? I mean, let's make a prediction right now today. Can the country do this?
1: They will. They have to if they don't then there's consequences and they're painful. So I hope, I hope they will, but not yet. I mean, the January his six hearings are going to proceed and each side's going to line up and act like it's existential. But ultimately here at home, you and me, we got this, right? And anybody else listening, just let's start talking to each other, let's start understanding each other. Whatever the conspiracy theory is, recognize that something, there's some pain attached to that. And it may be hard for you to feel that or recognize that about yourself if you believed in the conspiracy. But I promise you the day is coming where you're going to see it in somebody else and you go, why would you believe something so stupid? You must be an idiot. Don't say that. Stop, stop, because there before before the grace of God went you and, and look at it differently. Start to recognize the humanity of that person, disassociate their ideas from them. And as you said, make eye contact, really listen, take in what they have to say, understand what's motivating them. Maybe then we could get to the root issues of these things, or maybe if we just simply even hurt each other. Empathy, by the way, is dramatically expanded by personal contact, one-on-one. As soon as you know somebody who is in the affected group and you start to care about that person, you see the issue differently. It's a fact. And uh, we're going to talk about the media and how they how they mess with this and how all kinds of institutions to keep their own power do this in future episodes here on Grace Sarkey. but i today the the issue is no january sixth hearings more listening
0: amen brother folks we're going to wrap this one you got your grace point for today right listen listen make an effort to too. not just like listening to stuff going by on the street get out there in the street and stop somebody and find out what they're doing and 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 be vulnerable and all those other wiggle words that we like to, you know, use all the time. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, this is Grace Arkey with Jim Babcock. I'm your host, Bill Protzman. We'll see you again really.